Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Countdown with Keith Elberman, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, and In These Times. Unstated inference that if there is a liberal bias, there by necessity cannot be an intentional conservative bias. Our third story in the countdown tonight, a new piece of hard evidence that there is indeed a conservative bias in at least one quarter of the media, a Rosetta Stone of jaundiced journalism, or if you prefer, actual Fox News spore, and still fresh. It's apparently a printout of that channel's daily editorial memo, marching orders emailed to key staffers on how and where to slant the news, how to adjust the facts to match the political conclusions and not the other way around. Dated November 9th, the morning after Democrats secured control of both houses, obtained by the HuffingtonPost.com, it states, quote, the elections and Rumsfeld's resignations were a major event, but not the end of the world. The war on terror goes on without interruption. Then it brings out the old a vote for Democrats is a vote for terrorists chestnut. Quote, let's be on the lookout for any statements from the Iraqi insurgents who must be thrilled at the prospect of a Dem-controlled Congress. And there's another dig at the new majority, quote, the question of the day, and indeed for the rest of Bush's term is, what's the Dem plan for Iraq? This could be a very short live shot for Jim Angle, but he'll try. And finally, a reiteration for the network to continue to try to scare the crap out of the American people, quote, we'll continue to work the Hamas threat to U.S. that came hours after the election results, just because Dems won, the war on terror isn't over. Columbia Journalism Review pointed out that hours after that memo was issued, Fox News Live desk host Martha McCallum reported from New York that there were, quote, some reports of cheering in the streets on the behalf of the supporters of the insurgency in Iraq that they're very pleased with the way things are going here and also with the resignation of Donald Rumsfeld. Now that's a coincidence. Let's explore the journalistic sleight of hand. We're joined now by documentary filmmaker Robert Greenwald, who in his movie Outfoxed examined other similar memos and other stuff put out by that network. Thank you for your time tonight, sir. Pleasure to be with you. This basically is it, right? I mean, a, se a memo from Fox's senior editorial vice president in black and white the day after the election last week, prophesying the day's news and then making the news fit the prophecy. It is a smoking gun, is it not? There's no question about it, and it's the worst kind of obscenity. And I really think they've crossed a new line here. In the year that I spent studying them and the memos we got for out Fox, we compiled them. But to do it immediately after the election and to make these kinds of accusations and then to force the facts to fit what they wanted to fit really, to me, has brought them to a new line. If they were journalists, they would be ashamed, but they're not. And the Huffington Post and your show are to be commended for not allowing them to continue to get away with this. Now, remember, Dan Rather was fired for not fact-checking. I want Rupert Murdoch to fire whoever put out this memo now and to call for an investigation now of Fox News if they had anything to do with being a news organization. Uh, his name is John Moody, and we'll get a little bit on his background in a moment. But t tell me about your experience and experience with these memos, their frequency, their importance. They've been shown before, but here's one in the flesh that seems to have resonated pretty loudly. What do they mean? Do you have any idea how they would get out? Well, they would get out because there are good, solid, patriotic citizens at Fox News, and this is just the beginning. There's going to be a lot more coming to the Huffington Post who think that it's a travesty who think that heads should roll because of this. Now, what the memos do, and I'm sure you don't have this on your show, they tell the correspondents what to say and how to say it. Let's make no mistake about it. This is scripted entertainment. You give an actor lines, you tell them what they're supposed to say, you tell them how to say it. That's actors, that's puppets, it has zero to do with news. And what we found in Outfox was these would come several times a week. Frankly, I thought that they'd stopped after our film, but I guess they're back uh, in full-fledged uh, shining armor again. The devil's advocate question. I'll read that fourth paragraph again and just sort of I'll take it out of the context and ask you this. The question of that day, and indeed for the rest of Bush's term, is what's the Dem plan for Iraq? What, uh, just that, what's wrong with that, and could there not be a memo, if not a daily memo, but a memo somewhere at any other network that reads, the question of the day, and indeed for the rest of Bush's term, is what's Bush's term for a plan for Iraq? Well, uh, there should be a memo saying what are the plans for Iraq, 
and I defy anybody to show me one hard question that Fox has ever asked about stay the course. Stay the course when there's no course to be staying, just this kind of insane policy that has no place to go. And there's never been any questioning or probing about that. But again, the assumption and what we all know is that they are not a news organization. They carry out the propaganda. They carry out what the administration tells them to say. And this is just further evidence of it. The tragedy is some people still think they're really getting news. And in a democracy, which we love and cherish, news is a critical part of it. And the notion that they parade behind the banner of news really does all of us a tremendous disservice. There are, lastly here, there are two separate references to the war on terror continuing no matter what happened in the election. There's a third reference to the Hamas threat to the U.S. Do you think the document originates in the Fox offices, or is it just too paranoid to think this might be a rewrite of White House press office or Republican National Committee daily talking points? Well, you know, the sad thing is it almost doesn't matter because they are so in sync with each other that you'll never see a disparity. So whether it comes from the White House or whether it comes from Fox News or they mutually feed each other, the notion of scaring and terrorizing us. When we did the Out Fox movie, I literally had six hours worth of scare the hell out of them stuff. We couldn't put it in the full film. And now you're going to see it more and more again. Look, it's a terrible time for conservatives. The election's a tragedy. Fox News is losing viewers. It's losing advertisers. They're in free fall. So what do they do? They go to their same old, same old, which is try to scare us. I don't think it's going to work, and I think that we can call them on it. And someone in that organization is calling them on, them, uh, on it, too, and that perhaps is the good news contained within. Robert Greenwald, maker of the documentary film Outfoxed. Great. Thanks for joining us, sir. My pleasure. By the way, about the author of the memo, he's John Moody, Fox News Channel's senior vice president of news editorial. He's not nearly as well known as owner Rupert Murdoch nor major domo Roger Ailes, but on a day-to-day -day basis, he may be more influential than either. And a sidebar to this, he proves the theory that it might be nature and it might be nurture, but ultimately it's all about the individual. Moody got his news training, the beginning of it, at Cornell University. Not long before I got mine at the same place, he and I each overlapped for two years at Cornell with another guy named Bill Maher, several years before Ann Coulter graduated from the university, preceding another Cornelian, Izzy Povich, who is the executive producer of this newscast. And by the way, we did call Fox News Vice President of Communications Irina Briganti for a comment, but received none. We wish her well. The roof is on fire. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. Motherfucker. Hello, my name is Jimmy Pop, and I'm a dumb white guy. I'm not old or new, but middle school, fifth grade, like junior high. A new study by the Media Watch Group Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting criticizes PBS's flagship news program, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer. The study finds that NewsHour interviewed many more male sources than female, that people of color made up 15 percent of U.S. sources. Fair also found on the issue of Iraq, NewsHour interviewed five times as many guests who advocated staying the course over withdrawing troops. Well, in his new book, Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in Corporate Media, Media critic Jeff Cohen dissects the cable news channels and also finds serious failures in covering the most urgent issues of the day. Jeff is the founder of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, though not with them anymore. He has been the co-host of CNN's Crossfire, a weekly panelist on Fox News Watch, and a daily commentator on MSNBC. He joins in, me in the Firehouse studio now. Welcome to Democracy Now! Thank you. It's good to have you with me. Uh, first talk about... Cable News Confidential, your experiences in the media and how it relates to the climate of today. I live to, to tell about it. I was inside as deep as a progressive media critic has ever gotten. And what I found at places like CNN and MSNBC, the number one fear among the working reporters, the producers, is of doing anything that could get them or their channel accused of being liberal. 
and I saw the spectrum that's constructed, the spectrum of debate is center to right. And, you know, people blame that on Fox News, you know, Hannity and Combs, a phony GE to GM spectrum. But it was really CNN and PBS that invented that years before there was a Fox News. So in the book, I describe how that gets constructed and why and why almost half of the political spectrum is kept out of uh, political debates on a regular basis on TV news, especially cable. Explain how it happens. And you were also a producer for Donahue, for the Phil Donahue show. Well, we were trying to change the situation at Donahue. But I, I mean, the people that run TV, uh, it's a they have a corporate view. Their idea of balance is to get a conservative Republican to debate a conservative Democrat. For years on Crossfire, the host was Michael Kinsley of the New Republic. And every night he announced, I'm Michael Kinsley from the left. After doing it for six years, he gave up his seat, and that's when they tested me to be the co-host. And a reporter asked Kinsley, after six years, what are your politics? And he described himself as a wishy-washy moderate. And that's typical. Um, when I was tested for the show, I was co-hosting with Bob Novak, Crossfire. And I asked Novak, you know, settle this for me, Bob. Who's further, during commercial break, who's further right, you or Pat Buchanan? And he starts railing about Buchanan being a liberal New Dealer on economics. He said, look, I was an Eisenhower Republican in the 50s. I've moved further right every year since. And, you know, look at who represents the left on TV. It would never be someone who said I was a Kennedy Democrat in the 60s and have moved further left every year since. It's just unheard of. So they construct a, a situation where it's center right. And by having the center represent the left, they don't have to worry about corporate sponsor flight. They don't have to worry about um, corporations being attacked in a serious way. When I was tested for the CNN Crossfire job, that was a concern of theirs, that I would be criticizing the nightly sponsor. There's no doubt they made it explicit to me. And then, you know, when we were trying to redress this problem on MSNBC, years later, I'm the senior producer at the Donahue Show, and the war starts coming. And management, you know, we have to remember, FAIR has always talked about how these media outlets are strict corporate hierarchies and the powers at the top. Well, it's theoretical until you're on the inside and it happens to you. And in the last months of Donahue, we were ordered by management at MSNBC. Every time we booked one guest who was anti-war, we had to book two that were pro-war. If we booked two guests on the left, we had to book three on the right. At one meeting, a producer suggested uh, booking Michael Moore and was told for ideological balance she would need three right-wingers. And, you know, I, I used to think about proposing Chomsky as a guest, but our stage couldn't accommodate the 38 right-wingers we would have needed for balance. I mean, when you see this kind of suppression, when we would talk about booking Scott Ritter, one of the most articulate dissenters, a skeptic of the WMD evidence, because we had a steady parade of weapons experts that got everything wrong, and they were unrebutted. On MSNBC, I was a pundit. I couldn't discuss the weather without being balanced by at least one fire-breathing right-winger. But the weapons experts got on all by themselves, and everything they said was wrong. And we tried to book Scott Ritter, and it was like clockwork. We'd hear in the building at MSNBC, oh, we hear he's covertly, he's getting covert funds from the government of Saddam Hussein. It was completely false, a smear aimed at getting a, an articulate dissenting voice off of mainstream TV. I'm sure it wasn't just being heard at MSNBC, it was being heard at other channels. And the irony is I learned years later that one of the experts, one of the advocates I was always debating on MSNBC was, in fact, a recipient of covert government funds. The covert government funder was the Bush administration. I'm talking about Armstrong Williams, who got all that money to push No Child Left Behind. No one invited me into the No Pundit Left Behind program. So, yeah, I mean, this, the spectrum that I saw in TV is enforced. Uh, there's always exceptions. I was at Fox News on weekends every week for five years. There's always exceptions to the rule. But this rule is a general parade of a narrow center-right GE to GM spectrum. And then, of course, Donahue was forced off the air. Was it because uh, his show was failing ratings? Well, think about it. When his show was taken off the air three weeks before the Iraq invasion began, it was the most watched program on the channel. And it's very rare in TV news where the most watched program, or TV, where a most watched program gets canceled. And, you know, the day after Donahue was terminated, that memo leaked out. It was never supposed to get public. An NBC internal memo about MSNBC, it said Donahue represents a difficult public face for NBC in a time of war. 
He seems to delight in presenting guests who are anti-war, anti-Bush, and skeptical of the administration's motives, unquote. What they really worried about is we had, we tried to get dissenters on there that would say, you know, this might not be about weapons. This uh, impending invasion might be about oil or military bases or empire. And to question motives is almost a cardinal rule. To say that the motives of U.S. foreign policy might not be pure, that's not something they want. And, you know, that NBC internal memo that leaked a day after Donahue was terminated, it went on to describe their nightmare scenario. Donahue would become a home for the liberal anti-war agenda, I'm quoting, at the same time that our competitors are waving the flag at every opportunity, unquote. Now, I know what you were doing in that period. And I know what independent journalists were trying to do, which was ask the tough questions before our young men and women are sent to kill or be killed overseas. They wouldn't let us do it. And they wanted us waving flags. And what I saw inside the mainstream at MSNBC and elsewhere is when journalists are so busy waving flags, they don't have the energy to do their jobs, which is to ask the questions before the bombs start flying. What do you think of MSNBC host Keith Olbermann now? You wrote a piece, Is Olbermann on Thin Ice? He is speaking out vociferously. Right. Olbermann is, a, is an exception to the rule like we were briefly. I, uh, the warning, I think... Media activists have got to be on guard. I know FAIR is on guard. I know Media Matters for America is on guard. Oberman is the top-rated show on MSNBC. His ratings are booming because he does independent journalism. And, uh, but he's got the same management. And the owner of MSNBC, we should have mentioned, is General Electric, makes a lot of money from war. Um, I know these management people. Because the, what's changed for Oberman, the reason he's possible is the political zeitgeist has changed. Uh, politics has changed. This upcoming election is one of the most important in years, and politics may really change. That's what's helping Oberman. But if things went the other way, and somehow the, the conservatives were on the ascent again, if you're working in a big corporate media outlet, they don't let you kick the conservatives if they're up. The only time you get a chance at the conservatives is when they're down. And uh, it's, it's important that the political zeitgeist change and continue to change in a progressive direction. And then the Obermans get a little support. But if anything were to happen to Obermann, the media activism movement, Amy, is so much stronger now than when they were suppressing us at Donahue years ago. A lot has changed in four years. And one of the real changes in the environment is media activism is stronger. Internet activism is stronger. Oberman is, is ready to be supported in a way people weren't even getting the news that Donahue needed support. Donahue's being muzzled. It's a great change in the last few years. Also, I mean, just in terms of business decision, Oberman's doubled his audience as the highest rate. But we could have doubled our audience. They knew that. They wouldn't let us double our audience. They were less interested in us ramping up our, our ratings than in tamping down our content before the war. Remember, when Donahue was on the air, Bush's popularity was pretty high. The war was just coming. Now the war is in the shambles, and Bush's popularity is very low. That's giving Oberman the breathing room, and I, I commend him. I think he's doing a great job. Um, a Reuters editor might have lost his job for writing the book Brainless, The Lies and Lunacy of Ann Coulter, according to the New York Times. On Tuesday, Joe McGuire, one of two editors in charge of markets coverage at Reuters, handed his bosses the galleys of his new book. And on Wednesday, McGuire discovered he would have plenty of free time to promote his book. Neither side in this dispute would say that he was fired. Right. Well, look. I mean, I was on the inside. People get terminated for political reasons, and they say it's ratings. But the word got out that Donahue was the highest-rated show. We should say that one, reason, one thing that's changed is something that FAIR brought about. I mean, this intensified media activism, the boom in independent media, the boom in a media reform movement that's going to be gathering in Memphis in January, it's, it's in some ways because FAIR 20 years ago started. And we're celebrating, uh, shall I mention real quickly, we're celebrating our 20th birthday tomorrow night at Cooper Union, the Great Hall in New York City for anyone who's in this area. Um, Amy Goodman's going to speak, Barbara Ehrenreich, the great cartoonist, uh, Tom Tomorrow, uh, Deepa Fernandez, you name it, they're going to be there celebrating fair tomorrow night at Cooper Union. And that's a big thing. I mean, Oberman knows that part of his audience it's the web-based audience. He says something t uh, last night, and it's all over the web this morning. And it's really a new thing. 
Uh, and, you know, by the way, when I was at Donahue, I kept talking to management. I said, look, Amy Goodman has moved from radio to TV. She's booming. Daily Coast, these new blogs, they're booming. Let us be the one hour on TV that offers a dissenting view on the war, and our ratings will boom. But they were less interested in ratings when Donahue was at MSNBC than in their fear of the content of letting Phil Donahue be Phil Donahue. What about when you were on uh, Fox? Did you face the kind of pressure you did on MSNBC? That's the irony. I was on a weekend show. I was on their media criticism show. I got away with more at Fox News than in MSNBC. People assume I was fired at Fox News because they know my progressive views. I left voluntarily because I was sure I would get a, a better forum for my views at a more middle-of-the-road channel like MSNBC, which was managed by NBC News, the top news division in television. And, uh, you know, I, I immediately went over at MSNBC. I'd heard so much about the liberals that inject their politics into the news. I went searching for the liberal media there. I found about seven liberals. I'm including the camera operators, the makeup artists, and the interns. Uh, so, uh, no, it was a mistake. At Fox News, I did blast Murdoch and Fox News repeatedly. I was given special, I had special leeway being on the weekend. They would never have let the show be Hannity and Cohen. I remember times that people went up to Hannity and said, are you afraid of Jeff Cohen? Why don't you have a real debate? Instead of Hannity and Cohen, it's Hannity and Cohen. And, of course, it wasn't going to happen. You can't represent the left. This is a rule, CNN, Fox, MSNBC. You can't represent the left every night on American TV if you're actually on the left. We're going to leave it there. Jeff Cohen, founder of FAIR, his new book is called Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in Corporate Media. You set it up. You made it too easy, Eric. That's your fault. I didn't think I was. You're just very good. <laughs> All right, Eric, uh, let's talk about your book. Uh, you know, I went to, an, uh, to the museum in Arlington, Virginia, many years back now, and I saw how news developed in this country, and I was, you know, I had I'd known about it a little bit before, of course, but it really brought it home to me, and it was fascinating to see how much more partisan news was um, back in the beginning of the country and how people have forgotten that. Uh, and your book addresses that. Actually, that's all it was, was partisan. People uh, back in the uh, late 17th and early 18th and mid-18th centuries bought printing presses, gentlemen, for the express purpose of promoting their own political points of view. Before we won our independence from Great Britain, that point of view was either uh, pro or anti-independence. After we had won our independence, uh, the press was even more partisan because then we were discussing whether we should be federalists, which is to say that the country we created now should have a large central government, or republicans, which is to say it should have a weak central government and strong states. So partisanship, you know, the partisanship was probably synonymous with journalism back then. Now it, 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 it can be a quality of journalism. Back then, it was the same thing. When did it uh, change uh, exactly? When did we get away from sort of strict partisan journalism and get into the model that we had in, until recently, at least, uh, that, you know, well, that, that's thrived for, you know, the better part of the back half of the 20th century, certainly? I would say it was a long, gradual process beyond the period of my book, uh, Infamous Scribblers, but it, but it is kind of interesting. Uh, one of the main developments toward getting us out of a partisan press didn't occur until after the Civil War when uh, the Telegraph made possible wire services like the Associated Press, 
which could not be sending out different versions of stories right, right, to right. suit the biases of individual papers. Hmm. The, the, the AP, for economic reasons, had to use the Telegraph time wisely, expeditiously. It wrote as fairly as it could, not because it wanted to be fair, but because it wanted to be economical. And this was one of several but one of the more important of the gradual steps throughout the 19th century, which led to a less partisan press. Uh, we're talking to Eric Burns, whose book, uh, Infamous uh, Scribblers, is uh, available now. Um, and and uh, I'm just curious, Eric, because, you know, it's, I mean, perspective is always important, and it's not like after reading your book, I think we should get away from criticizing the work that the press does now. But, right. but one, it puts it in perspective for what's happened here in the United States. But also, I mean, and, and correct me uh, at the moment that I'm wrong, but around the world, I mean, you know, you'll read now about the sort of, you know, you'll read in Chile about the leftist newspaper and the right-wing paper, and I mean, around the world it strikes me that much of the model of colonial America is being followed much more closely than the model that we have now in the 21st century of America. You know, I think you make a very good point, and it, and it isn't just partisanship. Um, Sam Adams was probably, the, the two most surprising things about writing the book to me were, first of all, to find out what a victim George Washington was of the press. I mean, can you imagine, you, you read how he was savaged in the press, and of all emotions to attach to George Washington, you feel sympathy. Hmm. I mean, whoever thinks of sympathizing with George Washington. But Sam Adams was the biggest surprise because of how far beyond partisanship he went. Sam Adams so desperately wanted this country to be separated from Great Britain, legislatively if possible, if not militarily that for the Boston Gazette, which was his newspaper, he wrote out-and-out out lies. I mean, he made Jason Blair look ethical. About, he wrote these lies about the British, sort of, to whip the country into a war fervor, sort of. Right? Precisely. And we were headed toward that fervor anyhow, but it was too slow for Sam Adams. So he wrote stories about uh, British troops patrolling the streets of Boston and sexually assaulting American women, which didn't happen. And, and, and he even went further than that. He incited violence. You know, the Stamp Act passed in yeah. 1763 may have been as unpopular a piece of legislation as this country has ever known, imposed on us by Parliament. Tell tell people what the Stamp Act was real quick. The Stamp Act was a tax on, on newspapers, on legal documents, on all paper goods, which I don't want to get into all this now, but wasn't as unjust as the colonists made it out to be. Sam Adams, however, did this, and, and, and you gentlemen think about the person you think is the, uh, is the most horrible journalist in America today. Don't tell me. <laughs> think about I was going to say. And, and then you yeah. ask yourselves whether that journalist would do what Sam Adams did. Adams wrote an article okay. about Andrew Oliver, who had been appointed by the Crown to collect taxes under the Stamp Act. He suggested in the article that the Stamp Act was so unfair that people want, might want to, quote, take matters into their own hands. Okay, that's how he started. That night, he invited some friends of his into the offices of the Boston Gazette, and he outlined a campaign of small-scale terrorism. He said, here's what you do. Trash, uh, trash the man's office. Trash Oliver's home. Threaten him with death if he doesn't resign. So two or three days later in the Boston Gazette, and I say two or three days later because newspapers were not daily back then, Sam Adams writes an article about how Andrew Oliver's house had been trashed, his offices had been trashed, he had been threatened with death, he had decided to resign, never once intimating that he had been responsible for the whole thing. Now, journalism has never... In, in, in my knowledge, in the, in, in the decades and centuries since, sunk so low. We don't think of Sam Adams as being an ignoble person right, right. because he was ignoble in a glorious cause. But viewed, as my book does, strictly through the prism of journalism, we have never in this country had a less ethical journalist than Sam Adams. Great brand of beer. Eric, it's yeah, I hear you on that. It sounds like if Don Rumsfeld was the Secretary of Defense for England back then, he would say, "Well, this Sam Adams guy, he's not fighting fair. This unconventional warfare, we're going to have to apply different rules here. And if we find these guys, we should definitely torture them." The I don't know about the last line, but he certainly would have been justified. Anyone would have in thinking that Sam Adams was unfair. I hesitate to call this guy a journalist, and for the purposes of your pick a journalist and don't tell you, I'm now going to tell you, and I definitely don't think he's a journalist, but I do think G. Gordon Liddy would do that. Yeah, well, G. Gordon Liddy. <laughs> no, I was going to go with Ann Coulter, but she's not a journalist either. Right. Let's stick to journalists. Uh, we're talking to Eric Burns. Uh, uh, he wrote the book Infamous Scribblers, and uh, he happens to work at Fox News. We'll get to that in a second. But, but Eric, you guys decided to have me on anyhow. Uh, yeah, well, look, we're fair and balanced. 
Never mind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, uh, let's give me a, I, I love the Sam Adams example, and I actually I find the, the topic of your book absolutely fascinating. And I, and I love Ben's question as to when it turned, and, and your ex- explanation of that was something I had not heard before. Let's talk a, a little bit about more of the outrageous things that they did back in the good old days. You know, Jefferson versus Adams. Well, and, the and, and if you could, and pick a story that includes sort of the, the getting up that sympathy for, for George Washington. How was he ripped? Well, he was, he was, uh, actually, he, he was ripped starting when he was a soldier in the French and Indian War. He did not do well. You know, the Revolutionary War started out poorly. And as president, he was thought to be, you know, Washington's demeanor. He was thought to be too regal. Um, the, the things that were said about him were, were just outrageous. Uh, the, you do not have enough intelligence to be president. Uh, you do not know how to get along well with other people. You want to be, you know, we had just defeated George III you want to be George the first. But let me give you what I think, if I may, is one more truly outrageous example. Now, I gave you the Sam Adams example before the war, and I had mentioned earlier that after the war, the press was just as bad because we were trying to decide whether to be, to interpret the Constitution in a Federalist, i.e. Hamiltonian way, or a Republican, i.e. Jeffersonian way. Hamilton and Jefferson were both cabinet officers under uh, Washington. And it made sense for Hamilton to be because he agreed with Washington. They were both Federalists. But Washington appointed Jefferson to be Secretary of State, even though Jefferson strongly disagreed with him. Washington was a little naive. He thought Jefferson's a noble man. Okay. Another thing that wouldn't happen today, both Hamilton and Jefferson, while employed as cabinet officers, funded newspapers using government money. (laughs) Now, Hamilton, this was pointed out in the Jeffersonian press, and Hamilton said, what's the matter with spending government money to advance government policies? You know, one thinks of George Bush and uh, Armstrong Williams. Well, there is something wrong with it. But Jefferson went even further, gentlemen. Not only did he appropriate uh, State Department money to to fund a newspaper which savaged the administration for which he worked, (laughs) but he would provide the editor of the paper with information by leaving the door of the State Department unlocked at night, leaving incriminating documents on his desk, and inviting the editor to come in and quote them out of context. And Washington was, was furious at this. He never knew of Jefferson's role in this, but he knew that, that, that the ideas that the paper published were Jeffersonian. So he called Jefferson into his office once, and he said, uh, is there anything you can do about these, these articles that the National Gazette is publishing? I don't know how they get their information, but, but, but they're so unfair. They're so unkind. Is there anything you can do? And Jefferson, to his eternal discredit, this isn't a noble man in many ways, but lied to Washington's face. He said, well, I barely know the people who work for the paper. I'll see what I can do, but I doubt that I can do anything. He was funding the paper with with government money. Wow, you know, that makes Dick Cheney and George Bush's leaks look like child's play, and that takes some work. Well, you know, George Washington is thought to be the founder of the leak, and as I point out in the book, it's, it's like Frankenstein's monster. You, you, you might do something for your own benefit. Washington was so upset at the press P.S. that he called them infamous scribblers, thereby giving me a title, but so upset at the press that he devised the leak, and it was the same thing that it was today. You know, he'd have cabinet officers take somebody out for an ale and say, listen, here's some information for you, publish it the way we want it, and we'll give you more. But uh, the reason I say a leak was like Frankenstein's monster is that you couldn't control it. Soon, people like Jefferson, who were opposed to Washington's policies, were using the leak for their own ends. You know, but you know, there's two revealing things that I take out of what you've just said. We're talking to Eric Burns. His book is uh, uh, I've forgotten the title. Infamous, Infamous Scribblers. Scribblers. I'm sorry, I just you've misplaced. forgotten the title. I know it's a ridiculous thing for a radio host to say. It's embarrassing. Uh, frankly, I'd hang up right now if I were. Is that why there are three of you? So one of you can be sure to remember. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Who's the guy we're talking to? I can't remember. <laughs> That's right. Bill O'Reilly joining us now on the Young Turks. No, uh, Eric. Uh, the, Eric Burns is the writer. Infamous Scribblers. Is, is the book, and, and you, two things you revealed about the, well, the greatness of George Washington. We talk about it on the show, that how he's actually, I think, undervalued uh, as a president. Uh, is that one, at a moment when he's got these negative stories coming out, uh, you know, and this is, he's the first president. He can almost get away with whatever he wants. He's yep. wildly yep. popular around the country. He calls right. Thomas Jefferson in, says, can you do something about it? Can you talk to them? At no point does he say, I'm going to close that paper down. 
I, get, I don't know whether it occurred to him, but he knew that was the wrong thing to do. And now we know we can't do that because we have 230 years where we know that we believe in a free press. Uh, I, I find that it, it telling about sort of the character of George Washington. The second thing you actually mentioned earlier about how the criticism of, oh, you just want to be George the First, he's too regal. Well, he had the opportunity to be George the First and said no and got it and understood it. And I don't know that we give George Washington enough credit for playing such an instrumental role in the direction this country went for the next 230 years. Well, we certainly should, but they didn't at the time because even though he would he would say outright that, you know, that he would not do this, uh, he was asked once to pose for a statue uh, in a toga, and he said, absolutely not. I will pose in my conventional attire. But at the time, uh, the, the, the words that he uttered to try to placate people who were afraid that he wanted to be king simply weren't sufficient. And, and, and you know, by the way, what, uh, what Washington's first act was upon retiring from the presidency, one of his first acts? Gays in the military? He, pardon me? Gays in the military? That was second. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you guys are out of order. <laughs> and I mean that in both ways. All right. Um, he, he canceled his subscriptions to every newspaper that he got. There were ten of them. Huh. Now, he eventually uh, reinstated a few of them because he felt he was too far out of it. Right. Uh, without seeing the papers. But the papers bothered him so much that he said, I don't need to know this stuff anymore. He canceled 10 subscriptions and went to Mount hey, At least at the time, he was reading papers. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. he didn't just read the headlines. Anyway, Eric, uh, listen, uh, here's something really interesting. What, you know, you say the Associated Press, for, uh, for economical reasons, uh, develops this new thing where they have to give it uh, only one copy, and so it has to cover all sides. And I find that fascinating. So what, was it uh, inevitable then that when we got back to the situation where there are many different forms of press and many different types of media, that partisan journalism would inevitably come back? Was it inevitable? I don't know, because even the most partisan of journals today uh, uh, pay lip service to the notion of impartiality. We didn't even back then recognize it as a goal. Someone who owned a printing press in, in colonial times uh, thought of his printing press the same way that uh, a shopkeeper thought of his goods. In other words, he was, it was an instrument for him to sell a product. Actually, he wasn't selling a product. He was selling ideas. But if you would have said to a printer at that time, make your, you know, let's give the other side of the story, he would have regarded that comment the same way that a shopkeeper would have regarded uh, a comment along these lines. Well, uh, uh, tell the customers about your competitors' prices and goods. It, we didn't have a tradition of fairness, and that, to a great extent, led to the unfairness of the colonial press. Eric Burns, uh, author of Infamous Scribbler. So then, obviously, uh, Rupert Murdoch, following the tradition of the times of the Founding Fathers, just bringing back some, you know, good old-school old journalism. <laughs> you know, the, among other problems here, this is three against one. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, hey, you guys invented three against one. <laughs> Welcome to our world, my friend. I didn't invent three against one. I wrote a book about a time when journalists... And, you know, this really astounds conservatives because it, 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 it's, it's amazing to me how conservatives with, who have attained such ascendancy in government, in the courts, on, on all talk radio, still see themselves as, as, as victims. You yeah, know, well, they still that see is interesting. Yes, absolutely. As, as, as a minority. And it's remarkable to me that some people uh, look at this book and, and refuse to believe the evidence before their eyes, the notion that it could possibly have been worse. I'm not going to tell you the name of this, this, this guy, but he's a, a fairly famous right-wing-leaning radio talker. And I, I, I trust you, gentlemen, and I know you're very busy, and I'm not trying to nail you, but you either read the book or you know very much about Infamous Scribblers. Infamous Scribblers ends with, uh, with Jefferson's presidency and uh, Alexander Hamilton being uh, shot to death during it. That's 1804. I was introduced by a right-wing radio talk show host in this manner. And here's Eric Burns, who thinks that George Bush is being coddled. <laughs> now, awesome. That's, uh, why don't you guys look in the index of infamous scribblers and you tell me if you see Bush, yeah. w, George W. Yeah, I suspect. Uh, no, I hear you. I actually looked for War on Christmas, but I didn't find that either. <laughs> uh, Eric, the book is, is featured in Chapter 17, though. Eric, the book is available at bookstores now, Amazon.com, all that good stuff. Uh, Amazon.com, Borders, Barnes and Noble, independent bookstores. 
you could find it anywhere you wanted to. Not everybody gets free copies like you people. Well, so. I, t- I tell you, the uh, uh, this causes our co-host Jill to roll her eyes. Look, I spent uh, eight years as an actual journalist. There, uh, this is fascinating stuff. It is important. Are you saying stuff. I'm not a journalist? No, I'm no, saying you roll your journalists. eyes whenever. I'm. We're certainly not now. We gave that up. Uh, Eric, thank you. It's a fascinating interview. Thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for picking on me only minimal. No, yeah, I think you got off. You got off easy. Come on. <laughs> we uh, didn't pull a Sam Adams on you. <laughs> you certainly didn't. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, All right, Eric. Eric. And, and by the way, we got to give a, a, a little uh, a word of uh, uh, everybody's to calm down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the web stream is down. We are working on it. We're fixing it. Uh, we'll be back. Hang in there with us. And for those of you listening on the radio, you don't care. Will you win? It's your show now. So what's it going to be? Because people will tune in. How many train wrecks do we need to see before we lose touch? Thought this was low. Well, it's bad, getting worse. Oh, where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels. I don't see them on the TV shows. Where'd all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we saw. They got this and that with a rattle attack test and one to me what you're gonna do bad news missed news got too much to lose the media hasn't perfected this embedding process where reporters are embedded in the front lines of troops i mean what do you get from that perspective it's a perspective it is interesting to hear what's happening with the soldiers on the front line but it is one perspective and yet it's almost the only perspective we've gotten of war where are the images Where are the images from Iraqi hospitals, from Iraqi communities, from the peace movement around the world? The Pentagon, Victoria Clark, the former spokesperson for the Pentagon who hailed from Hill and Knowlton, talked about how the embedding process has become a spectacular success. It is their model now. They perfected it through Grenada, through Panama, the Persian Gulf War. And one of the people who perfected this process, who were the architect of the censorship rules around the Persian Gulf War, Pete Williams, spokesperson for the Pentagon at that time, is now chief correspondent for General Electric's NBC. Is it any surprise, right? General NBC used to be one of the major nuclear weapons manufacturers in the world. Its network, one of its chief correspondents, is the Pentagon spokesperson who crafts the censorship rules as spokesperson for the Pentagon. We've got to change it. But let's go back 60 years because it didn't just start now. 60 years, how the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were covered. In the exception to the rulers, my brother David Goodman and I David, also a journalist who writes for different publications like Mother Jones Magazine. We looked at two reporters, an independent reporter named Wilfred Burchett, the first one into Hiroshima, and William Lawrence, the reporter for the New York Times. Wilfred Burchett defied the Pentagon restrictions, the military restrictions that reporters, no one was supposed to go to southern Japan after the bombs were dropped. Most of the press went off the coast of Japan to the barge to cover the Japanese surrender, but Wilfred Burchett got on a train and rode for 30 hours to Hiroshima, was horrified by what he saw. For any buildings that were left standing, saw the charred, saw shadows burned into the sides of them, people running with their skin melting off, utter devastation. Didn't even have the words to describe. Said there's some kind of atomic plague here. He was talking about radiation sickness, people dying not from the initial explosion, but somehow weeks, days later. And he sat down in the rubble with his Hermes typewriter and he tapped out the words, I write this as a warning to the world. It was a report that rocked the world. And the U.S. military was enraged. And they called back reporters to bring them to New Mexico where the bomb was first tested July 16th. We just passed the 50th anniversary of that date. Chief among those reporters, William Lawrence of the New York Times. And they were called back to counter the Japanese propaganda that people were dying of radiation sickness. And William Lawrence wrote about 10 pieces to counter 
among the issues he takes on is the countering of that charge. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting. He was one of those in the squadron, actually, who went up on the planes that dropped the bombs on Nagas the bomb on Nagasaki. He won the Pulitzer Prize. It turned out that he was also on the payroll of the Pentagon, on the New York Times and the Pentagon, and the New York Times knew it. He was writing press releases for the military, statements for President Truman, and for Secretary of War Stimson, and he was writing the pieces for the New York Times. We have called for the Times to be stripped of that Pulitzer. You contrast that with George Weller, wrote for the Chicago Daily News. He slipped into Nagasaki, the first reporter in Nagasaki, and wrote a 25,000-word story on the nightmare that he found there. But he made a crucial error. He submitted the piece to military censors. His newspaper never even received his story, as Weller later summarized his experience with MacArthur's censors. They won. His son just found the carbon copy of his 25,000-word report of the horror of Nagasaki and has just made that publicly available, the report that never got published. It's absolutely critical. We have an independent media in this country that tells the truth. War is hell. That should be reflected. And then people can make informed decisions about whether it is an option. If we saw babies dead on the ground, if we saw women with their legs blown off, if we saw soldiers dead and dying. You know that President Bush has invoked this executive order that says you can't videotape or photograph the flag-draped coffins of soldiers coming home, and that you almost never see wounded U.S. soldiers brought home in the dead of night, under cover of night for a reason, because they have power those images. They have the power that ends wars, like the Vietnam War. I don't know if the video got to the point where you saw the picture, that famous picture from Vietnam of the naked girl running, burning with napalm. The pictures that end wars. I was recently invited on Aaron, uh, had Aaron Brown of CNN on our broadcast and asked, where are the pictures? CNN's so willing to show the you know, the nightscape of the bombs looking like fireworks in Baghdad that come from Al Jazeera, because he said, don't forget, CNN was banned from Iraq. But they do show the images from Al Jazeera of the nightscape. What about the pictures they show of the casualties? Why not show them as well? And he said it was a matter of taste. But war is tasteless, and it's our responsibility to show reality. I don't like reality TV. But this is the kind of reality TV that we need. And I do think if we saw for just one week these images, that people in this country, Americans are a compassionate people, that people in this country would say that war is not an answer to conflict in the 21st century. Thanks for listening, everybody. My apologies for the shows being so few and far between, but uh, unfortunately this pattern will in all likelihood continue at least through the end of the year um, when things in my personal life may begin to settle down a bit. But uh, certainly everything is, is very much up in the air at the moment, and, and so no promises will be made on that. Uh, thanks for all the feedback on the format changes and different ideas floating around. And certainly there are some very valid concerns about, um, uh, well, there's a very small minority of people whose uh, MP3 players simply uh, are not made for long shows like that and um, would essentially be forcing them to either listen to the whole show all at once or... Um, or not ever hear the end because it would be far too much trouble to fast forward to the end. And then, of course, there is the uh, the crowning 
argument that was made by by one listener who said he preferred that the shows be less than 80 minutes long because then they fit on a CD that he can hand out to friends. And of course, since the point of the show is the dissemination of information, uh, that did it. So the shows uh, will be um, less than an hour and 20 minutes or so, and there will be fewer of them. I, I don't expect that uh, the show will, will come back to a daily podcast anytime soon unless uh, there's a massive influx of uh, support and, and really production. Uh, a, a while back, I offered that uh, if, any, if anyone was interested, they could actually help produce some episodes of the show. And so I'll, I'll reinstate that offer. I mean, it's been valid this whole time, but of course I haven't talked about it. So uh, if you're interested in, in helping produce the show, then that could certainly help uh, get a few more episodes out. Mainly, however, I, I, I just plan on trying to make them uh, a little bit longer, and I figured it was a very fair compromise to, um, to try out that new enhanced version of the show. So for those longer episodes, if you do have, uh, if you listen in iTunes or on an iPod, then you can fast forward, and of course that's a feature that um, definitely got uh, very positive feedback. So uh, I do plan on continuing to do that. Part of the bumpiness in my personal life that is going to be uh, having an effect on the show has uh, pretty much entirely to do with the fact that I have uh, finally quit the job that I hate and will be moving soon. So uh, more details will be coming on that, but uh, consequently, if you've ever considered uh, helping support the show financially, uh, frankly, this is the time to do it. Um, I am, I've quit my job and I'm planning on moving soon, but not immediately. So I, really my focus now is on uh, spending some time with uh, the friends that I will be leaving behind and of course in the meantime I have zero income so if uh, you know if you appreciate the show or um, have ever felt any inclination to try to help it out in any way uh, this would be a, a good time to do it just uh, simply in a, in a time of need more so than usual more details on all of the exciting goings-on will certainly be forthcoming in the next days and weeks, but uh, until then and for now, have a good one, everybody. Take you out